Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 10th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So, just getting uh, some... Uh, internal Broadway radio business out of the way here. Uh, Jan Simpson's All the Drama, her latest episode about Fences, the August Wilson 1987 Pulitzer Prize winner, is now available to the public. If you are a Patreon member, you got it last week, but now it's available to the general public so you can all bathe in the wisdom of Jan. It, I love this series. This series is so, so wonderful. And uh, please get over and listen to it and let us know what you think about it. With the stuff that Jan is doing is really amazing. It always is. Also, uh, Matt Tamanini's in New York. And if you are a Patreon member of uh, some sort of certain level, I'm not sure which level it is, <laughs> you are getting his daily updates of what he's seeing and what he's doing in New York, plus an interesting take on... Uh, um, new musical down at the uh, public theater that Matt didn't really uh, like all that much. So, uh, did you guys see uh, Hell's Kitchen down at the public? Or I'm going the day after Christmas. Ah, uh, I couldn't get in till then. Peter, have you seen it? Yeah. Um, has it opened? Yeah, it oh, it yeah. opened. Yeah, yeah. Mm, it did. Uh, so it, it got good reviews and it seems to be coming to Broadway and Matt is like, that is a mistake, but please listen to Matt's, uh, uh, listen to Matt's take on, on that musical in our, on our Patreon feed. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I I think the only review I read was the New York times and it was quite mixed. Mm. He basically loved, loved, loved the first act and thought the second act was kind of a mess and really needed a lot of work so it'll be and he phrased it as saying that it'll be interesting to see if 
they do the work <laughs> uh, yeah. before it comes to Broadway. Um, you know, so we'll that's see. more or less what Matt said as well. Is mm. that uh, you know he doesn't know a ton of is it Alicia Keys? Yeah, uh, Alicia. He doesn't know a ton of Alicia Keys music, um, but uh, uh, that some of it is really really great. And he said this: the cast is spectacular. Uh, but there's a big, big problem with the book and will they be able to mm. do it in time to, for a, a Broadway opening in the spring? Uh, or that's... will it not make a difference <laughs> to the audience that comes to see it? But, you know, all this, yeah. all of this remains to be seen. <laughs> yes. Frankly, I, frankly, I thought the book was terrific. Um, I was very Are much you? engaged. Yeah. I was very much engaged with the story and um, I thought they did virtually everything right where it came to the book. Interesting. Wow. We'll have to have our own crossfire. Felicia on the left, Tem and Innie on the right. <laughs> By the way, James, I, I have a bit of news I didn't mention. Uh, we're doing yeah. the reprise of our Jerry Orbach's Broadway show at oh. 54 Below on Thursday the 25th. And I'm delighted to say that we've got Anita Gillette to be in this ah. edition. Because she, uh, first of all, she appeared with Jerry in Carnival. Uh, she was initially just in the chorus, uh, but then she had to go on for Anna Maria Alberghetti in the lead role. Um, so mm -hmm. they knew each other from there. And then a few years later, they did a revival of Guys and Dolls at City Center as Sarah Brown and Sky Masterson. So um, they uh, they knew each other pretty well. And I wasn't sure. I, I Initially, I thought Anita might sing a little bit of... Uh, I'll know and or I've never been in love before, but she said, you know, why don't I do if I were a bell? Cause it's such mm -hmm. a, you know, it's such a fun number and, and I, you know, I can do it as I did it with like playing off of Jerry. And I think we're going to get a Jerry Orbach stand in for her to play off. of. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that's, that might be really special. Michael, did you say the 25th? Yes. Thursday. What month? Thursday, January twenty fifth. <laughs> not January, not, not February. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, not, 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 not December not either. December. No, yeah, that okay. would be a mistake. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, no yeah. You know, uh, December twenty fifth is you know not a lot to do, so it might be a good <laughs> idea to do it. <laughs> I think some shows actually play. Well, some not Broadway shows, right? Do any Broadway shows play on Christmas Day? I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. Don't yeah. Know. Well, you know, for the three of us, every day is Christmas. So. <laughs> All right. So first up, Michael and Peter got over to Theater Road to see production of Lone Star. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on Lone Star? This is a play I saw originally um, when it was first produced, and I didn't much like it uh, at that time. Um, but boy, I've, I've totally changed my opinion. I guess it has a great deal to do with the cast and the direction, which I thought was really superb. Um, this is about, um, well, Maynard, Texas, um, a small town. This, we're in the early 70s, and uh, we're, we're talking about a Vietnam vet and um, all the problems that he has as a result of having been in Vietnam. Um, he's Roy. 
His brother's name is Ray. And both of them um, talk about that for a few minutes, about how their parents uh, decided to do that, or at least the father decided to do that. So um, there we are. And uh, what we're really talking about here is a story about people who um, don't have much uh, drive in their lives, not much ambition. But um, Roy, superbly played by Matt DeRogatis, superbly, um, is somebody who expects that his life isn't going to turn out to be so good in a strange way. That's what the subtext that he plays that is so wonderful because by the end of the show, he will have lost both. Well, let's put it this way, a person and a possession. I don't want to give too much away a person and a possession. And we'll see which one actually means more to him. And what we'll also see very potently is that he does expect that bad things will come into his life. And that's really was quite wonderful here. Uh, by the way, Dan Amboyer plays his brother. Uh, very, very nice job by him, too. But eventually coming in is uh, another character, Ryan McCartan, uh, playing Cletus, uh, <laughs> who's a very dorky guy. Um, and um, I know this actor, and I'm telling you, he's nothing like this at all. So it really was quite a stretch for him to do this. He comes in, and he's going to turn out to be the deus ex machina of the piece. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of people are going to wish that uh, this machina didn't have anything to do with the machine, but that's another story. Um, what's also happened is that um, they got permission from James McClure's estate. I'm sorry to say that James McClure, the playwright, is no longer with us. Uh, and um, they got permission to take um, a sequence from another play of his, Laundry and Bourbon. And as a result, you have a character named Elizabeth, wonderfully played by Anna Isabel, very nice guitar player. By the way, um, I don't know if anybody knows about this. Uh, maybe this is a trend now, and I don't know about it, but I noticed the guitar only had four strings as opposed to six. Um, she wasn't um, impaired by this, but nevertheless, is this a thing now? Do we only have four-string guitars? On It was a guitar built for six strings, but anyway. Um, anyway, she does a lovely job with um, some very pretty music. And uh, so, 90 minutes in and out, uh, and I think a very worthwhile evening, especially because of um, Matthew Regattas really taking the bull by the horns. Okay. Michael, what'd you think? Did it turn out to be 90 minutes, Peter? Uh, wasn't it? I don't think so. I thought it was considerably longer. Oh, yeah? Although they billed it as 90 minutes. Um, oh, I see. There's... Uh, um, <laughs> and we can't disagree because um, we were at the same performance. <laughs> you were at the same performance. <laughs> and Peter stayed for the talk back. Um, afterwards, I did not. Such uh, a devoted theater goer. Go on. <laughs> yes, and I didn't see Linda leave early. That's right. She was there. <laughs> I will tonight. say, um, uh, before I get into anything else, this was one of the worst behaved audiences I've ever seen in my life because it's quite a small theater. Um <laughs> at theater row and believe it or not at one point some large guy sitting in the middle of the front row got up and left and then came back and took his seat again in the front row and then two other people left and came back during the show this was the official opening night so i don't know if that had anything to do with it maybe there were people who were like involved in the theater you know but didn't really have any interest in theater uh and, <laughs> and didn't have any respect for 
for the actors, uh, you know, who were like a foot away from them when they stood up and got and 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 worked their way through the row and then went out into the lobby for God knows what reason for about five minutes and then walked back in and took their seat again and disturbed everyone again in the front row and sat down. Um, amazing, isn't it? Uh, but as far as the performance of the play itself, I enjoyed it, although I, I'm not sure um, exactly what the playwright's intent here, because it came across to me as basically a comedy about a guy with PTSD. Um, as Peter mentioned, the, this, one of the one of the two brothers, uh, Roy and Ray, are the brothers, and Roy is the one who had uh, been in, well, I guess Vietnam, right? Uh, and uh, and has PTSD. Uh, but I felt like the v- huge bulk of this play and this production was played as a very broad comedy, um, and that would include. Um, well, both of the other two characters, Ray, played by Dan M. Boyer, and Cletus, played by Ryan McCartan. And let me say, I completely agree with Peter about Ryan McCartan, because, I mean, he played the sexy, hot, cool guy in the musical Heathers. Um, that was one of his major credits here. And I would not have known it was the same person. If uh, if I didn't see his name in the in the playbill, uh, really, really very very talented, um, and I was so impressed that he created such a, a completely different character. But as I said, very very broadly comic, um, and I would say goofy and nerdy. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody else mentioned I didn't notice it that he had a pen protector in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the that's the kind of the char- character we're talking about. Um, similarly, uh, Dan M. Boyer uh, gave a very different characterization than anything I've seen him do before, and he deserves even more credit, if anything, because he came into this production quite late in a replacement of Barton Cowperthwaite, who had to uh, drop out because he had a brain tumor. Oh boy! I'm very happy to say that Barton ha- had surgery for that brain tumor, and apparently it went very well to the point where he has been announced uh, for the ensemble of The Outsiders, the the new musical, which he actually was also in Out of Town. So he's going to be coming back to that. But that was um, that was really really scary when I when I read about that. So I'm so happy to hear that apparently he's doing well. And uh, it certainly gave a great opportunity to Dan M. Boyer to step in and and really be excellent. But um, I, yeah, so I I don't know. um, I mean, if if I said to you, Peter, that that I thought this was a comedy about a guy with PTSD and it made me uncomfortable, what would be your reaction to that? I, I can appreciate your reaction. It didn't strike me that way, but I understand that. Sure. I wouldn't do you, disagree. Do you mean, uh, did you not agree that mu- that much of it came across as a comedy? Oh, sure. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very funny. Um, in, in many instances, I, I, I laughed quite a bit, quite a bit. And yeah. so did the rest of the audience. Um, yes, indeed. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it it got a little serious towards the end, but even those, uh, I kind of felt that even those two things you mentioned, that, that he loses a possession and a person, I, I thought even much of that was treated as a comedy. Um, so I'm, I, I guess I don't like the way the playwright treated all of that material. And I suppose it might have something to do with the direction as well, uh, which was also very, very broad. Uh, but as I said, the audience responded to it, at least as if it were a comedy, which I guess it was supposed to be. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what the original intent was and if this production fulfilled the original intent. By the way, this show, uh, Peter said he saw it before. It was on Broadway in 1979, uh, paired with another play, uh, by James McClure called private wars um, because you know, they're each one acts. Uh, but here it was just done by itself with the addition of that other material um, that Peter mentioned. It says um, uh, that this has combined elements of the sister play, quote unquote, laundry and bourbon, and also an unproduced screenplay of Lone Star. Uh, so that's where this other character came from Elizabeth, who is supposed to be Roy's wife, uh, who does not actually appear in uh, Lone Star as originally written. But the way they put her in here, I, I personally did not think it was effective at all. She basically has a, uh, got, how long was it? 15 or 20 minute monologue right at the beginning, including two or three songs, which as she did sing very well, <laughs> as Peter mentioned, very well. Uh, but it just seems so expository and so schematic and, and just uh, completely uh, uh, from a different universe as the rest of the play in style and 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 not being integrated with the rest of it. So I thought personally, that was a huge mistake. And I guess maybe they did it just to get a woman's presence um, in what otherwise would have been a three character, uh, all male play. Uh, so I, I thought that was very weird. Um, also uh, after that it, lengthy expository monologue and three songs, there was a, a I would say a, maybe a 10 minute, mini documentary video about the Vietnam War uh, that I guess they put in uh, to give context to people, uh, maybe younger audience members who don't know a lot about that. And it was very well done and very interesting, but it just kind of took like forever for the actual play to start. So um, those were my negatives about it. I, I did like all of the performances. I thought Matt DeRogatis, um as Roy was certainly better cast in this than he was as brick in cat on a hot tin roof. Um, and, uh, as I said, I really, really enjoyed the other two performances. Uh, well, the other three performances, but I mean, um, the other two men, Ryan McCartan and Dan M. Boyer. Uh, so I was glad I got to see it, but I, uh, I didn't like a lot of the choices that were made in adapting it for this production. Okay, so that is Lone Star at Theater Row. It's uh, playing through December 23rd, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you uh, saw our production of Mad Women of the West, so tell us about this. 
Yeah, this I, I would call it a trifle. Um, that uh-huh. was <laughs> that. That was my main reaction to it. Uh, that was written by Sandra Singh Low, and it it's at the Actors Temple Theater, and it is directed by Thomas Caruso. Uh, but my main interest in it was the cast: Caroline Aaron, Brooke Adams, Mary Lou Henner, and Melanie Mayron. Uh, or Myron, however that's pronounced, um, who I'm sure most of our listeners know from their various work on television, films, and the stage. Uh, really, really an amazing cast. And I, I felt like this was the vehicle for four actresses. Uh, it, it seemed to me like it was dashed off. Um, and it's a very meta piece because what happens is uh, right at the beginning – Caroline Aaron comes out. Uh, her role is uh, name is Marilyn, and she um, starts talking to the audience as the audience. And it, it almost seemed like she was doing the pre-show announcement, including the bit about the cell phones. So I thought, well, that's a little unusual that they got someone in the cast to do that. But whatever. Um, but then it, that her her speech to the audience kind of melded into the show. And then she sort of melded into her character. Uh, And initially she had a script in her hands, but then one of the other characters came on. I think it was uh, Brooke Adams as Jules who came on first. And she said to her, um, Oh, are we using scripts? (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, and Caroline as Marilyn said, Oh, well, I, you know, if we're, if you're not, then I guess I won't either. And she put it down and throughout the whole, almost the entire play, there were meta moments like that where uh, the one or another actress would turn to the audience and say something outside of the play. Um, Also, there were uh, meta elements in that, for example, Mary Lou Henner's character of Zoe um, at one point, it was mentioned that she has a photographic memory uh, and can remember everything that she's ever read or done. Uh, and I, I think it's pretty well known that Mary Lou Henner herself um, has that incredible ability. Uh, so, But the character wasn't called Mary Lou. It was called Zoe. <laughs> um, so there, there are elements of meta, but it's not. it wasn't completely... Uh, crafted so that we're supposed to think that the characters, well, the actors are playing themselves. That was not the case. Um, and there was, it was really just c- considered, consisted of about an hour and a half of discussion of various hot button issues among um, these four women. There's a lot of talk of politics, a lot of talk of sexuality, um, including mention of vaginas and vulvas. And I, I noticed that the mention of the word vulva uh, caused two people in my audience to leave. Um, I guess they thought that was a horrible, horrible word. I mean, for heaven's sake, guys. <laughs> you know? um, uh, discussion of transsexuals. Um, as I mentioned, politics. Hillary Clinton's name came up and was not well received by the audience, uh, which was a little shocking. Uh, yeah, so... Um, I would say it was very enjoyable for a while. It started to get a little wearing to me at the end when it became obvious that there was going to be no kind of payoff and no kind of climax. It kind of really pretty much just petered out, I would say, at the end. Um, And uh, I would be curious to know exactly 
how uh, Sandra Singlo created this and what she was thinking of uh, and how long it took her to write it. It didn't seem like it took very long. Uh, I mean, of course, I have no idea, but that was my impression. So, uh, yeah, a trifle, an enjoyable trifle. And if you want to see any of those women on stage, you will not be disappointed. They all were terrific. And I have to say, Mary Lou Henner looks incredible. I had not seen her. Um, I had probably not seen a photo of her or seen her live or on TV for decades. And she almost basically looks pretty much the same as she did, uh, you know, in Taxi. I mean, just a little older. So that that was really kind of nice and comforting in a way uh, when that happens. Um, so that's my report on Mad Women of the West. <laughs> So now might not be the perfect time to tell you this. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Mary Lou's a big fan of Broadway radio. She's one of our Patreon supporters. Oh, nice. Uh, and she listens to us all the time. And in fact, uh, Matt Tamanini interviewed Mary Lou, uh, oh, I want to say a couple weeks back. I can't even remember. It's uh, beginning of November. So we have an episode. Uh, uh, with Matt and Mary Lou talking about Mid Women of the West. Uh, and, oh, that's uh, great. And so it's in our podcast feed. I will uh, throw a link to that in there as well so you can listen uh, to that. Uh, so that's Mid Women of the West. So next up, Peter, let's uh, head over to the east side of Midtown. And uh, well, the, the real United Nations is there, but you saw the United Nations, the other West at the new Ohio, which is sort of on the West and the downtown. So yeah. tell us about this play. Well, you know, most of us thought we wouldn't be seeing another show in the new Ohio that yeah. uh, probably converted into God knows what uh, perfume shop or something. But anyway, um, it, it has been rented out. Uh, Cameron Darwin Bossert has uh, written a play. He's directed it as well. And it's quite impressive. Now, this is a political play, as you might infer, from United Nations. Um, and what we have four representatives to the United Nation. One is Rudolf Schmidt from Germany. One is Agata Orlov from Russia. One is is Linda Gerald from Liaison Services. Um, she's not a representative. She's a person who's there to facilitate and make things better. But uh, the real conflict comes in when um, Charles Cabre from Burkina Faso comes in. Now, uh, you are pardoned if you've never heard of Burkina Faso, and something is made of that as well, the fact that um, it is this tiny country in Africa. And even though it's quite populous, um, the fact remains that many people don't know about it. So here's this representative. Now, the funny thing is, this is a play about politics, and yet it manages to be tremendously funny. Uh, if you you know you, the expression read between the lines here you laugh between the lines mm -hmm. that's what makes it very special um you might not expect this when you're dealing with people from the united nations who seem to be in deadly earnest but so much of what they say you can interpret in a way different from the way that they actually are speaking. All right. Um, how's the production? Terrific beyond belief. Um, it's really wonderful to see um, Siobhan Crystal play the liaison. 
uh, who really um, is very deferential to these people. After all, this is her job, and she wants to make sure that everything's going well. But she has her moment in the sun as time goes on, too. Um, and it's very nice to hear what's really on her mind at play's end and what she's observed and what she feels. So that's um, quite good, too. Matthew Sanders does a very nice job as the German representative because he has a German accent and yet it is not one that will drive you crazy. You can understand what he's saying. Yes, you can. And uh, he's very effective there. I also very much admire Delina Schmulensen uh, playing the Russian representative, uh, trying to keep a cool head on uh, that famous Rudyard Kipling expression from the poem, if you can keep your etc. Um, well, she does that extraordinarily well. I think the real find, though, is Wesley Spencer as uh, Charles, the representative from Burkina Faso. What's so wonderful is this actor has a wonderful way of being both eloquent and elegant. And that's what we need in this play about this gentleman who does come from a foreign country that is not going to get the breaks naturally. He has to fight for what he's going to get. And yet... He never gets ugly. He always keeps a cool head. It's really an impressive performance, and I really do believe we're going to hear from Wesley Spencer as time goes on. Wesley, by the way, is spelled W-E-S-L-I. Um, so he's unique in that way, and he's unique in many other ways as well. So I uh, look forward to seeing Wesley Spencer and the other three, too, in the years to come. And by the way, we certainly haven't heard the last of Cameron Darwin Bossert. Okay. Um, so next up, Michael, you got over to 54 Below to see Christine Petty in her new show, Snow Business. So tell us about it. <laughs> yes, Tuesday, December 5th at 54 Below, and she was live streamed that night. So lots of people got to see it, which is great. Um, Christine's been doing a Christmas show for I many years I, I forget how many exactly um and at various venues but I think she um I think she's sort of settled on 54 below at least that's where she was this year um it was a wonderful show frequently hilarious um a highlight every year is her performance of 12 days of christmas mm. um what she does is she gets uh she puts a, a bunch of names of celebrities in a hat, uh, people whom she imitates. And then uh, the audience, uh, someone goes around with the hat in the audience and people have to pick out a, a name and whatever uh, day of Christmas it is. <laughs> um, uh, Christine then sings the entire chorus uh, or verse uh, in the, in the voice of that celebrity. Uh, so it, it's a lot of work uh, for her and, and also for Matthew Ward, her brilliant musical director and pianist. They really have to stay on their toes. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, of course they can, they can work on it previously and, and, and uh, she can rehearse each. She would have to re rehearse all 12 verses in all 12 uh there are probably more than 12 names in the hat um so i'm sure she does that and by the time she gets to actually do it it's it's perfection uh but the audience absolutely absolutely loves it uh the um 
the women included this time among the among those being imitated were Liza, uh, Angel Lansbury, who uh, not, not only does Christine do the best Lansbury I've ever heard, I think she's the only person I know who does Angel Lansbury. So it's fantastic that she does her so perfectly. Uh, Eartha Kitt, um, Fran Drescher as SAG president, <laughs> uh, that got a tremendous hand from the audience mm. i, I kind of yeah. get the idea that everybody loves fran drescher now um even if they didn't you know they probably did previously just from her work in the nanny but now um with her leadership during that strike i think everybody absolutely adores her so that was wonderful um joan rivers was another person imitated and uh Judy Garland and et cetera, et cetera. So that was really a highlight. But what was so um, amazing about this particular show is that uh, Christine really had a major loss in her life recently. Her her beloved cousin, Maria Traversa, um, whom I have had met, died unexpectedly just a few weeks ago. And um, she acknowledged that. And she also uh, acknowledged uh the troubles in the world specifically what's happening in israel uh and she sang uh in response to that she sang uh what the world needs now is love sweet love uh and she managed to segue into all that and have some really really moving moments um but then uh you know move past it and then end the show on on an up note uh again and that takes real skill i I think to uh to do something so moving and so serious in the middle of a show that's basically hysterically funny um so christine is multi-talented and that's one of her multi-talents and her show is always uh somewhat different even her christmas show her snow business show um so i have seen it before several times and we'll always be happy to attend again. Okay. So that was Christine Petty snow business at 54 below. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you got up to the good speed to see a production of dream girls. So tell us about this. Well, first I should mention that I've always had a fundamental problem with dream girls ever since I saw the tryout in Boston back in 1981. And that is the fact that once Curtis announces to the group that indeed Dina will be singing lead and Effie will be singing backup, I I was consternated at Effie's reaction. I would like to think that she would understand that for the, this group to succeed, that this is the way to go. And indeed, the group does succeed with Curtis's uh, help and, and ideas. So, um, you know, there's that very famous expression, there's no I in the word team. Uh, well, I guess there's an I in the word musical, and that's the way uh, Effie feels, that she is entitled. So this is a problem I have had with this show since day one, or even before day one, depending on the, how you look at a Broadway opening. But, But in this production, it's very interesting that Effie seems to me more hurt than annoyed and furious. Uh, she also 
annoyed is really the word. She's more annoyed than angry. Uh, and a few things are missing. There is a scene shortly thereafter where she's singing back up. And when it comes time for her to deliver her one line in the song, usually what we've seen, what Michael Bernard had directed, was that she overcompensated, that she really made herself too loud. She really wanted the audience to know, I'm the best one here. They're putting me here, but I want you to know that I'm the best one. And again, I didn't like that in 1981. And yet that's not here. And boy, be careful what you wish for, because it really turned out to be very toothless to see her not furious and not overcompensating in that number. So um, I guess I'll never be at peace with dream girls, no matter which way they go. <laughs> I also have to say that um, when she comes to give her big aria, which is arguably the best first act closer in the history of Broadway musicals, uh, <laughs> it's such a powerful moment. Um, there was Curtis there with his hands in front of him, um, clasped in front of his groin. And I am telling you <laughs> that he looked <laughs> as if he had just done something wrong in school and was sent to the principal's office and looked like he was about to have to go in. He looked shy. He looked ashamed. And again, maybe this is the direction, conception that these people have more um, feelings than just the feelings that we've seen. Uh, Lillian Brown, by the way, is the director. And maybe she just wanted to say, Curtis does feel bad at what's going on. Again, it's not as effective as when he's steely and uncaring. He's had enough of Effie. It's ironic that her brother sings in the family song, You're Not Going Anywhere. Um, in fact, she is. But um, so it, this is not Dream Girls business as usual. And yet um, I felt that it lost a great deal, even though um, I've never been at home with um, so much of it. All right. How are the people in it? Um, by and large, quite fine, really. Um, uh, Evan Tyrone Martin playing uh, Curtis is pretty good in most every other scene that he's in. Um, I also, well, how can you not mention Effie Melody White? Atreja Bostic um, certainly sings very, very well. And her I Am Changing is uh, superb. Um, very, very nice. And... Um, who else, who else, who else? Well, um, certainly Ta Tanisha Wilson grows very nicely as Dina from the girl who doesn't believe she can do it to the girl who believes she can do it. And it's nice that Kirsten Hodgson as Laurel gets her moment in the second act. She has her big aria as well, and she does it extraordinarily well. So this is a kinder, gentler dream, girls. And I'm not sure that that's the way to go either. I don't know. Well, um, but boy, when Dream Girls is good, it's a very good show in many uh, ways. And when it's good, it really is very good. Um, Linda told me that indeed, um, this is the movie script that they're using. I don't know if that's true, but she, she felt it was. I will say that I missed a line that um, was in the original production when somebody mentions the Supremes. And I thought that was a very smart thing to do because... Um, many people have alleged that this is really the story of the Supremes. And so as a result, they could get in some sort of trouble by saying, um, but the Supremes, blah, 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 talking about another group that um, really um, <laughs> kills that problem. Um, 
the only other thing I really want to mention, I think is so smart about Tom Mayan's writing is when Curtis comes in and says, okay, there's going to be a lot of changes made. You know, you're not going to do backup anymore. You're going to be on your own. Ah, everybody's excited. You're going to get new costumes. Ah, everybody's excited. You're going to get new choreography. Ah, everybody's excited. And Dina's singing backup. I'm sorry, um, Effie's singing backup. So uh, it's so smart of him to deliver the assets first and get them excited and really indicate that um, good times are coming as well. But it does come at a price that um, the star vocalist uh, is not going to be the star anymore. But yeah, by the way, here we go. One of musical theater's favorite themes, love versus career. And that's what Dreamgirls is certainly about as well. So um, audience loved it. I don't know how many of them knew uh, Dreamgirls beforehand. It seemed to me that um, it was uh, new. Oh, one other objection. Um, I've saved the worst for last. All right. Those of you who know the show know that um, that um, Curtis arranges for a song to be written and sung, Cadillac Car. Okay. And the point is the Cadillac Car is overtaken by a white group that does it, much the way that Pat Boone in the 50s did Ain't That a Shame, which was a, a song that was originally done by a black artist. And, well, it was Pat Boone who got rich from it. Well, well, you are dealing with an all-black cast here so as a result what you have is three black people singing the song wearing blonde wigs and trying to pass as if they're white singers i really don't believe the audience unfamiliar with dream girls could begin to put together that oh this is a white group simply because they had blonde hair so what would have solved the problem very nicely is if indeed they had made a film, mm. if they had had um, white people um, do the film, show the film for a couple of seconds, that's all it has to be, and uh, people would get the um, idea. But I don't believe this was the solution. So that's that's a real um, fundamental problem. So a mixed bag there at Dreamgirls out of good speed. Okay, so uh, that is Dreamgirls at Good Speed in East Haddam, Connecticut. It's uh, running through December 30th, in case you want to check it out. You still have 20 days left to get up there. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I wanted to chime in uh, that I got a chance to see Ragtime at the Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, Michael talked about it a few weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was because of Michael's such a raving strong review that I headed down to see it. And I have to second Michael's review that I thought it was wonderful. And Ragtime's one of my favorite shows, so I wasn't concerned about that. But they really pulled it off. Uh, very, very strong production uh, in this uh, in this major regional theater that's important to the ecosystem of Broadway. And uh, I had to point out two incredible performances. Uh, the woman, uh, the woman that played Sarah uh, Awa Salseka, uh, I mean, she's just absolutely amazing. Uh, not only like an incredible, incredible singer, but a very, very strong actress. Um, I mean, if she was around when they were auditioning with Garth Drabinsky up in <laughs> up in Toronto, I think that we would be going um, Audra Who. 
So, <laughs> so she really uh, was great. You know, you know what I noticed? Just a small moment um, that was so devastating. Um, you know, they of course they sing uh, "Wheels of a Dream," and it's yeah. this incredibly joyful, soaring moment about you know the the their future and the future of their child. And then we see them um, driving in the car, and then they come a- upon those Irish tough yeah. guys who are going to you know. Uh, and when she saw those guys like all of the joy drained out of her face and it was like, she knew exactly what was about to happen. And I thought that is a really, really great actress. Yeah. She just really amazing. The the entire cast, uh, there's not a weak link in the cast. Right. uh, In in this. And which is amazing for, uh, you know, this is a very hard show to cast it's such a big cast and it's uh a very diverse cast as the story dictates uh and not a weak link just amazing the other uh actor i wanted to point out was danny stoller who played emma goldman um i i i think that it was a very very different emma goldman than i was than i've been accustomed to seeing and i loved it uh, you know i, I get it's, you know, sometimes caught up in the way I want to see, you know, yeah. it exa- exactly how it was before, but that didn't happen here. Also, Signature is um, about a 275 seat house or so. And I've been used to seeing Ragtime in a hmm. very big house mm-hmm. uh, in the Kennedy Center on Broadway and the various different incarnations on Broadway and various uh, regional productions in thousand seat, fifteen hundred seat house houses in a two hundred seventy five seat house, uh it it took on a very different thing. Uh and it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. So if you get a chance to get to Arlington, Virginia, please uh check out the Signature Theater's uh, production of Ragtime. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So that r- Oh, you know what? We were going to talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Uh, there was an announcement of a film with, uh, I don't know this person, called J-Lo. <laughs> J-Lo. J-Lo? J-Lo. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Michael. Maybe you could help me with that? <laughs> Just say Jennifer Lopez. and you'll be- <laughs> <laughs> Ah. Uh, so oh, uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, and directed by Bill Condon, uh, who's you know speaking of Dreamgirls, uh, he directed that, and he also wrote uh, the script, the screenplay for Chicago for the film. And you know what interests me most about um, this I- idea of making a film of Kiss of the Spider Woman? First of all, I swear to God, I was thinking about this just a few days ago before this announcement was made. I don't know what made me think about it. I, I, I suppose I was thinking about Cheetah, as I often do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought that musical would make an amazing film if they did it right. Because of the switching between the reality of the prison 
and the fantasy sequences. Now, the thing is, um, it will be so interesting to see how they do it and what songs, if any, they cut. Because in Kiss of the Spider Woman, there are a lot of songs that take place as part of fantasy sequences. But then there are a fair number of book songs that are actually supposed to be being sung, uh, you know, like in the prison and and et cetera. Um, so I, I can't imagine that they will c- cut out all of the book songs. Uh, I don't think they'll do that. Uh, but if they don't do that, I wonder what Bill Condon's um, uh, solution will be to make them work in a film musical. Uh, that I am very, very, very interested and curious to see. But I think this has potential to be a brilliant movie. What's really wonderful is that uh, here we are, 30 years after the fact, um, even more when you consider that the show started in Purchase, New York. And we, re- uh, those of us who saw it, they thought it was um, certainly all over. Um, hmm. It was terribly designed. Um, anyway, um, it didn't look like the same show when it opened on Broadway. But the thing is, who would expect a movie from this? I mean, obviously, Michael. But nevertheless, um, most of us <laughs> well, wouldn't think. <laughs> well, no, I, not really. I, I was saying it would be a great movie, right. if, but I didn't think anybody was going to do it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, really, what a what a wonderful surprise. But it really does indicate the musicals are back on the table where Hollywood is concerned. That, yes. Um, and because, of course, um, in the in the late seventies, early eighties, there was such a drought. I mean, it was it used to be routine that um, any Tony winning musical, all right, not Redhead, but I mean, would would get a movie. And that's <laughs> all there was to it. And then suddenly, uh, the best you could hope for were videos. But um, but God bless Chicago, which of course was written by the same guys who wrote Kiss of the Spider Woman, and um, whatever the case may be, it's nice that um, musicals are being um, planned again for the screen. I will say this though, Bill Condon was talking long and hard about doing Follies as a movie, and I guess this is what he went to instead. And I'm a little sorry about that. And speaking of Follies, did you see there's going to be a production in Las Vegas? Yes. And that's oh. something. With Nicholas yeah. King and Seth Sykes as uh, young Ben and young Buddy. And they were um, just about the only two names that I recognized. Oh, other than, incredibly, Frederica von Stade, yeah. the great opera star who's basically retired, I'm well, actually retired, uh, is going to come back and do Heidi. Um, so those are three reasons to go. And plus, uh, they're, they're touting a 26-piece orchestra. Mm. Yeah, I, I do believe that I'm uh, going to go out for that. So anyway, um, it, the, how wonderful there will be a Kiss of the Spider-Woman movie. But on the other hand, um, let's see if it really happens. You know, sometimes these things do fall through, as I don't have to tell you. So, um, yeah, but it certainly so. helps that to have Jennifer yeah, Lopez. Lopez right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm very concerned about Follies playing Vegas because <laughs> Vegas, um, Tends to hack up shows. Right. There is that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Mm. It sounds like this is not going to be one of those. I yeah. I can't wrong. imagine that the Sondheim estate would allow that to happen. I mean, they're not Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, 
They're uh, meaning also, that. Also, I, know. you know, I, I didn't, I didn't pay close enough attention. Is it going to be in a casino? It theater? says the uh, uh, Alliant, A L L I A N T, Aliante, uh, Aliante Hotel and Spa. But, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd imagine that it's a casino as well. I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's not a theater. It's not a dedicated. I don't even know if. They have it. Do they have any mm. dedicated theaters in Las Vegas, uh, other than at the university? I, I don't know. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, maybe there's a roadhouse, but yeah, yeah, we know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. There, there's not a fox of Las Vegas, <laughs> right? Schubert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, so it was uh, J Lo's and Spider Woman, and uh, that was big news this week. Um, we also had uh we talked about at the top of our 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 uh, show today about Hell's Kitchen announced uh, their Broadway plans uh but also that merrily extended into July so if you mm-hmm. are a listener who hasn't been able to get merrily tickets yet um uh, uh you do have a new block of tickets that are available so check those things out all right. Was it established so, that um, was it established that uh, indeed uh, they're still going to be with it? The same people. They didn't say otherwise. So uh-huh. yeah, one would assume yes. Uh, unfortunately, we have read that um, Lindsay Mendez had been m- missing a lot of performances, and and most unfortunately, apparently because of a very messy divorce. Uh, so um is hopefully there any other kind yeah 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 mm. well yeah so hopefully that will uh get worked out okay yeah it was it wasn't uh clear in the press release uh, obviously they hope to but they're not going to say so we'll see what happens there all right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our brain teaser, our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Patreon, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can get our podcasts earlier. And as I mentioned before, um, you can get Matt's travelogue and uh, Grace Aki uh, interviewed Sarah Bareilles uh, and uh, about the waitress film, and that was a uh, that was early on the Patreon feed as well. And we talked about Jan Simpson's all the drama. So there's a lot of things happening over at Patreon, and you can support Broadway Radio as well. You can also get us in Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, Pandora, Google Play, YouTube Music, anywhere that you get finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser? You sang the title song in a musical that opened on her birthday. Later, she performed this title song in The Ed Sullivan Show. As for the show itself, it wasn't very good, which may be why Columbia, RCA, Victor, and Capital, the big three record companies that routinely did cast albums at the time, let another company have it. 
Who's the singer? What's the musical that opened on her birthday? And what record label did the cast album? Well, Karen Morrow was born on December 15th, and 28 years later to the day, she opened in I Had a Ball, whose cast album was on Mercury. I, I don't mean it was on Mercury, the silvery liquid <laughs> album. I mean, the Mercury records. There was such a label. Uh, Michael Potentier was the first to get it, although he did have quite the head start. He was followed by Juliet Green, Paul Witte, Tony Janicki, Jeff Valenga, J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadude, and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question. Jonathan Larson taught us that a year contains 525,600 minutes. What musical theater character, seen and heard in three Broadway productions, is looking forward to something that will happen in 603 minutes? Well, 603 minutes and a couple of seconds. <laughs> hey, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, now that we're past Thanksgiving, I've dragged out my Christmas records and albums uh, because I really do enjoy Christmas music, even though I'm, I'm not religious at all. Uh, but just culturally, I, I love it. I grew up with it. And uh, so many people, so, so many people have recorded Christmas albums or at least individual songs. I Hard to think of a major recording artist who does not have <laughs> a Christmas album. Um, so uh, I, I've been collecting vinyl, as I mentioned, and there are all these compilation albums that came out in the, I guess, primarily in the 60s and, and maybe the 70s as well on various labels um, with odd combinations of uh, of artists because they just, uh, as I said, they're compilations. So they took uh, individual recordings from various other albums in, in many cases, or uh, sometimes they were, uh, the recordings were made specifically uh Custom made uh, for particular albums, but so for example, I have one album that is Firestone presents your favorite Christmas music, Volume Four, and the artists on it are Julie Andrews, Vic Damone, uh, and then two opera singers, Car Dorothy Kirsten and James McCracken. Uh, but then I have another album. Uh, called Great Songs of Christmas by the Great Artists of Our Time. And that's on Columbia Special Products label. And the artists include uh, Percy Faith, Eugene Ormandy, Doris Day, Robert Goulet, and Mahalia Jackson, among others. Um, so I uh, actually, I, I got that album uh, recently and I put it on and I had you know, just really glanced through uh, to see the artists who were on it, but I, I didn't pay that close attention. And I put it on, and the very first song was um, Silent Night, sung by someone in a very, very low, rich alto voice. So low that at first I thought that it might be a tenor uh, singing up in his high range. And do you know who it was? <laughs> Mary Martin. <Ooh. laughs> <laughs> Mary Martin. So that is our opener for today's podcast. Um, if you had no idea who that person was, <laughs> that's who it is, Mary Martin. And if you recognized her voice immediately, um, good for you, because I did not. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, there are moments, for example, on the Sound of Music album where uh, she does sing very low, but then most of it is much higher. So, uh, 
So um, anyway, uh, I'd be curious to hear how many of you guessed that it was her. Um, and our closer uh, features the other Maria, uh, the, the the movie Maria, Julie Andrews, singing the Christmas song, which is the official title of the song by Mel Torme that begins chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Um, and that is interesting to me because Julie loves Christmas music. Uh, she made three full albums of Christmas music, one in the mid 60s, I think one around, I think the other one was around 1980. And then there was another one, like maybe about 10 years after that. Uh, and I thought that that was the extent of her Christmas output. But no, she additionally recorded some single tracks for other other venues, other other purposes, including apparently this album. Uh, so I did not know until I found this album that she ever recorded the Christmas song. Uh, but I did find it on YouTube. Um, so it's a rarity, but you can get it there. And for that matter, I found Mary Martin's Silent Night on YouTube as well. Uh, but we are also providing the the links for you here. So please enjoy <laughs> the two Marias singing two beloved Christmas songs. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe Help to make a season bright Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow Will find it hard to sleep tonight They know that Santa's on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is going to spy To see if reindeer really know how to fly And so I'm offering this simple phrase To kids from one to ninety-two Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to you. And every Reindeer really know how to fly.